Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to Black's History Week. Continuing our series on the performance of the British Armed Forces in the Second World War, Professor Jeremy Black discusses with the critics' deputy editor, Graham Stewart, morale, naval firepower, the RAF's bombing offensive and the campaigns in Greece, Italy and Normandy. Professor Jeremy Black, there's a a popular perception that uh, in the summer of 1940, the British forces evacuated from Europe and then they returned in the summer of 1944 and uh, most of them um, spending their time in Britain preparing for for D-Day in the interim. But of course, that's not remotely true. Uh, The uh, invasion of Sicily and then of Italy in 1943. And before that, Britain's intervention trying to shore up Greece and also the the campaign in Crete in 1941. Let's um, um, start, if we may, with that experience in the in the Mediterranean in in, in the Greek campaign, um, obviously it went badly for for the British. Um, were useful lessons learned? Well, I think that's a very good question, Graham. I think it was a um, it was strategically a very difficult call because it involved distracting British efforts from the campaign in North Africa and exposing them on the mainland, continental mainland, um, against um, a German force, invading attacking force, which was had, as it were, better supply routes and um, with the British in a difficult defensive task and not helped by deficiencies. I mean, there were deficiencies in the British army, there were deficiencies in Britain's Greek ally as well. Um, did they learn from them? It's difficult. I'm, I'm not sure I could comfortably say that they did. I mean, I think what it's fair to say is that they saw, in particular, the Navy saw in the operations off Crete, the, the limitations of uh, warships against dive bombers. But of course, that wasn't to help them off Malaya uh, in that December, or indeed off Ceylon, the following Sri Lanka, um, the following April. So um, I think it's, you know, there's only so many lessons you can learn if the other side are in a stronger position. Um, And of course, it's worth bearing in mind that the British were to make a mistake going into the Aegean, not into mainland Greece itself, in the Dodecanese campaign later in the war, where again they were defeated. So I think it's fair to say that without adequate air cover, they had limitations. And one of the great importance of the invasion of uh, Sicily in 43 and of Normandy in 44 is really strong air cover. Mm-hmm. Well, um, obviously, Britain does have success in North Africa with the 8th Army, first against the Italians and then against uh, Rommel's German forces. But the 8th Army then crosses over into the Italian campaign. There's the Sicily campaign in uh, July 1943, uh, before in September moving on to the on onto the mainland. The Eighth Army is doing a huge amount of fighting. I wonder. Uh, I mean, the the, the North African theatre is a, that, that's a style of warfare so very different from fighting your way up the the boot of Italy. Um, how well prepared and, and is maybe even seasoned is the right word. What was the Eighth Army for such a very different challenge? Um, 
fighting quality of the Eighth Army was good, but Italy is excellent defensive terrain. Um, East-West, deeply indented uh, rivers, river valleys, um, no real opportunity for operational maneuverism. Um, I think it's fair to say that in military terms, whereas the uh, occupation, conquest, I should say, of Sicily was very sensible, and whereas taking Apulia and Calabria at the very bottom of Italy, the air bases in particular in, Abu in Apulia were sensible, I don't think fighting their way through the uh, successive German defensive lines, most famously the um, Gustav and the Gothic lines, I don't think that was terribly successful or sensible, although it was done. Um, but the a relatively modest German force um, ties down a lot of um, allied attacking forces. On the other hand, 43 was too early to invade France. There wasn't uh, as yet um, a sufficient factor of uh, of superiority and resource for an invasion of Normandy in 43. And therefore, from that point of view, one can understand the invasion of Italy. So you're in the classic situation that there may be strategic sense for something that is operationally flawed. Mm. Well, it's an interesting thought you raised that you know, there was strategic value in having those southern Italian bases. I wonder whether they could have, if the um, Allied forces had just held those and not pushed on up through the Italian mainland, though, whether um, just holding the, these perimeters would, would have been sufficient or would the Germans have been able to push them out? Or, as you say, was the nature of it, Italy essentially a defensive war and it wouldn't have suited the Germans to go on the offensive in that way? Well, I think those are very good questions. And I mean, all, 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 all counterfactuals, all military planning involves counterfactuals, which is why people that say counterfactual history is wrong are stupid, because that's in fact what you spend all your time doing. Um, the, um, I, there is always a problem that if you do not attack, you are obliged to defend, and that in defending, you also not only use significant troops, you also don't choose the moment or axis of attack so that you actually have to use a lot of troops. On the other hand, um, I'm not sure, for example, that the forces that the British and the Americans and indeed their allies expended in you know, operations around Monte Cassino, in the Anzio operation, I'm not sure that those were terribly sensible. In other words, I think one could have held a line um, after the equivalent of the Salerno attack, a line. It would have been politically, though, very difficult because there would have been a sort of claims going down to posterity that the British and the Americans behaved like the Soviets behaved by failing to, you know, to attack, uh, to try and uh, save Warsaw in 44 when it rose against the Germans. So again, you've got the political conundrum. Italy has come into the war against Germany. It's changed, in other words, side in 43. 
you need to be perceived strategically as trying to save the Italians. But the reality is that such major, Rome isn't um, liberated till June 1944, and uh, Genoa, Milan, um, and Venice aren't uh, liberated till the spring of 45. So you could say, well, making an effort's all very well, but a lot of people got killed and one wasn't particularly successful. Well, well, and a danger of coming back to this question of lessons being learned there. I mean, campaigns like the Anzio landings, which were, I mean, successful in the sense that they ultimately created the bridgehead, but, but at huge cost. Wasn't that helpful for the planning of Normandy any more than the, the with the Canadians, the Dieppe fiasco was really helpful other than then to you know, make clear things obviously not to do? Well, I think that's a very good question. I don't think it's a silly question at all. I mean, all amphibious lying, as you may know, I did a book called Combined Operations in which I look, there's two chapters on World War II. Um, all uh, combined operations or joint operations, whatever you want to call them, because terminology varies between Britain and the United States, all amphibious operations benefit from a process of sequential um, improvement. Um, not always. I mean, there's a really excellent book by Adrian Lewis on... Um, the landing at Omaha, arguing that the Americans learnt the wrong lessons from amphibious operations in the Pacific and applied them in a different context in Normandy and got badly wrong. Um, uh, whereas they, he, he argues the British better understood the task. Um, I think what one could fairly say at uh, Salerno and Anzio is that although the troops were landed successfully, what it was revealed was the ability of the Germans to mount counter-offensives and the need to very much have very strong air and particularly naval support, because the navies provided the continual firepower, aircraft can only remain over the battlefield for a relatively brief period of time, um, in order to counterattack, counteract the fact that you haven't got um, adequate artillery or armor that you can land initially. And I think, I mean, if you look at, for example, the British uh, in Normandy, the British produce an absolutely phenomenal amount of firepower, naval firepower, to back up their um forces and that's very important it means that you know had german tanks from say the 21st panzers you know got onto the beaches as it were they would have it would have been like anzio all over again where the british were firing across a you know a pretty sort of point blank range using heavy naval artillery against german armor and german armor of course was just not equipped to take that kind of punishment so, yes, I think it's fair to say the British do learn. Um, I mean, what is interesting to note is there is no significant amphibious operation in the Italian campaign after Anzio. So one thing they've learned is how difficult it is, um, which is another interesting way to look at it. And I think we've already mentioned in our last programme the way in which you get very many foolish commentators moving the equivalent of risk pieces around the board and saying, why didn't they do that? Why didn't do they do the other? And we were talking about shipping. Well, 
it's not just shipping, there are practical problems at landing a large body of men to and then making them combat ready and able to exploit, to test for and exploit advantage and to resist counterattack. That is not easy. Um, and I suspect one of the things you might argue that was learnt was how difficult this task can be. Well, you raise a very interesting subject of the role of naval gunnery uh, in, in landing troops. Um, many people, when they think of the naval, uh, the Royal Navy's um, contribution to the Second World War, they, they think of battleships, battle cruisers firing away at each other at some distance. But um, the, the role of, of naval gunnery in uh, supporting uh, landings. I mean, how, how uh, given that the ships are out at sea, how accurate can they be? Is it are they just firing the general direction of where they think the enemy might be, or were did they have sufficient, um, uh, I you know, sufficient um, communications and optics in order to really pinpoint individual positions to to bombard accurately? That's again another great question. I've done a book, as you may know, on mapping World War II. The, uh, the British and the Americans had formidably accurate maps of the defended coastline. They are firing, as is the usual practice at map coordinates. Um, the, um, the accuracy is really pretty high. Uh, and um, you know you can go along and see the surviving coastal fortifications there and you can see the damage that was uh, wreaked on them. And the key point is that naval gunnery is much more effective than air power, much more effective than air power. You can take a, you can remain off your target for longer, you can take longer uh, to aim, um, the counteracting fire is much less dangerous and you can actually take a higher load, greater load. So, you know, and you see that, for example, in the, um, as late as the um, uh, Lebanon campaign, and I think it's 83, um, in which the, you know, the Americans deploy the Wisconsin, I think I'm right in show it saying, and they're firing shells, which are not much uh, smaller than Volkswagens. And obviously that's, you know, they're quite, that's quite considerable when it hits. It depends whether it's armor piercing, high incendiary, you know, there are different kinds of shell you can put in. But well, naval gunnery can be very formidable. If you're using it against coordinates, it doesn't matter whether it's cloudy or dark. Um, you obviously have spotters uh, to try and work out the accuracy, but most of these guns have been pre-registered. So pre-registering is you when you're testing a, a piece of artillery, you actually test its accuracy because you know um, every gun is designed to be exactly and precisely accurate, but a measure of let us say naught point of 0.001% firing a shell at, shall we say, 15 miles is going to still have an effect. Uh, but you will have pre-registered your guns in advance and you will know their accuracy. And one of the great things about Normandy was that you don't really have to spend much of your time worrying about German submarines or aircraft, in other words, or motor torpedo boats. The, the, uh, the invasion fleet was very carefully uh, protected. Um, so you've got it, you know, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a picnic, but if you're sitting off in a battleship, you're in a pretty strong position. Um, I, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that, and again, as you may know, I've done a 
book on naval warfare since 1860, there is, of course, the tendency to argue that battleships are anachronistic, that the future lay in air power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And as you will know, probably, the last Royal Naval battleship is decommissioned in 1960. And, you know, people talk about the fate of battleships variously, like the German Bismarck and Tirpitz or the British Prince of Wales, and argue they were redundant. Um, that's very problematic. There are circumstances in which air power is not very useful for combat at sea, uh, particularly darkness, bad weather. Um, a lot of the innovations that are to help uh, the use of air power at sea are innovations from the 1950s. Um, and actually, the um, battleships are the crucial defense weapon against battleships. In other words, aircraft carriers are astonishingly vulnerable if uh, other surface shipping can come close to them, and the best defense for them is battleships. And you get um, conflicts like off Guadalcanal in late 42, in which large numbers of both American and Japanese surface shipping is sinking each other, um, because they're blasting away at each other, with, at, particularly at night, actually, often, um, in the kind of fire that air power is not able to do very much about. So one's got to be very careful here of assuming that battleships are anachronistic, either, at, um, uh, uh, either against aircraft carriers or against each other. And you can see that, of course, in the, at the close of the war, with the ability of, of warships to fight off kamikaze attacks. I mean, uh, I once gave a lecture in 2005 on the deck of the USS Missouri in um, Pearl Harbor. And as you know, if you've been there, uh, there's the marks on the deck of a Japanese plane that hit its armored deck and fortunately uh, didn't, um, didn't penetrate, didn't do too much damage. Um, um, but that's the point, that these battleships held off um, kamikaze attacks, which are pretty serious. I mean, the person the person is using their plane like a flying bomb. There are easy, um, but, and there were some, some losses, uh, but on the whole, what that showed was the limitations of the bombing force then available. Now you, of course, have missiles being developed in World War II, uh, German V1s and V2s, but they're not really use against nor do they have the accuracy to be usable against um fleets so there's no equivalent to the modern anti-ship ballistic missiles or sub sub ballistic missiles being developed by the chinese and the russians um so there's still a lot of value in the warfare of this period in conventional high gunnery um and i think that's quite important and it's an area of, um, of what we might perhaps now call almost asymmetric warfare in the sense that the Royal Navy is simply so much stronger uh, and uh, universal than, than, than the Kriegsmarine is. Yes, I mean, I think that's a very, a very fair point. I mean, the Kriegsmarine didn't really have, um, as before World War One, exactly the same position. They don't have the doctrine or training for amphibious operation so that would have caused them a real problem if they'd mounted operation sea lion against britain um they are um they've got some good ships they've got some brave uh, uh crew and commanders 
but fundamentally, ship for ship, they have serious disadvantages and deficiencies, leaving aside their um, geographical location. The best Axis Navy is the Japanese Navy. And the Axis Navy that's most underrated is the Italian. Um, the Italian, you know, we tend to think about the Italians in terms of their defeats by the British at the um, Taranto, the air raid, and um, the uh, particularly the Battle of Cape Matapan. And those were important and major British victories. But I think it's fair to say uh, that the Italians uh, also were a significant and determined um, a navy, and in many respects, as a surface fleet, uh, put in more of a effort and was at sea more and in combat more um, in uh, 1940 to uh, 42 than the Germans were. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that isn't widely uh, perceived. Very interesting to hear. What the, there is, a, a, I think, a common understanding about the, the importance of the Royal Navy in the uh, Battle of the Atlantic. Uh, less so, perhaps, the role of the Royal Navy in eastern waters and in the Indian Ocean after the sinking of Repulse and Prince of Wales off Malaya. Um, how significant was the Indian Ocean for Royal Navy operations? And uh, can it be said that it was uh, fundamental in preventing uh, the Japanese forces um, reaching uh, Ceylon, as Sri Lanka was then called, and in, in India. Did it really have a, a significant role there? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, as you correctly say, the Navy in the Far East was destroyed in late 41, not just the destruction of Force Z, which you refer to, but also the Battle of the Java Sea, when the force of five Allied cruisers, not just British cruisers, were destroyed by the Japanese. Um, there's only one major significant naval operation in uh, the Indian Ocean. On April the 5th, uh, five Japanese carriers, four biggies and a smallie, um, sail out, most of them based in Singapore, and they sail into the uh, Bay of Bengal, which is the eastern part of the Indian Ocean. They gain air superiority. Uh, they sink a British carrier. Uh, they sink two British heavy cruisers. They do a fair amount of um, aerial suppression and damage over Chennai, Madras, and over Sri Lanka. And indeed, if you look at um, oh, uh, Alan Brooks' diary for April the 9th, he's reporting with great anxiety uh, rep reports that the Japanese are about to invade Sri Lanka. But in fact, on April the 9th, and at that point, the British fleet in the Indian Ocean under Somerville, the fleet's now completely outnumbered in air terms, has been ordered to scatter. Um, the, um, I think it's fair to say that, I mean, I've argued in some of my works, this is probably one of the greatest crises of World War II. Um, but the Japanese on April the 9th, in fact, pull out. And in, on, of those carriers, four of them are to be sunk in the Battle of Midway. I mean, this is the main Japanese carrier strike force at, uh, at this point. And thereafter, the Japanese never come in force into the Indian Ocean, which means that the British are able to maintain their position in the Indian Ocean, which is primarily 
uh, defensive in the sense of to prevent any Japanese invasion, but more seriously I, of India or Sri Lanka, more seriously to protect the supply routes around the Cape to the army in the Middle East, you know, up the Red Sea, and also to supply, to protect oil shipments from the Gulf. And the British are able to do that with a relatively modest uh, naval force. And indeed, um, I mean, I'd have to look it up. It's in one of my books. But in I quote the extent that in 42, 43 and 44, with the brief period for when they're covering the assault on Diego Suarez, the main uh, Vichy French port in Madagascar in the spring of 42, the British do not have more than one aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean. Um, uh, for that assault on Madagascar, they have two. So there is a significance there, but the British are able, as it were, to protect the Indian Ocean with a relatively modest naval force. Now you could ask whether it might have been more consequential if the Japanese had tried to exert more force there. And the answer is yes, again, we're talking about hypotheticals, um, you know, but obviously the Japanese had nearby bases which they had conquered from the British, Singapore, Rangoon being the obvious ones. Um, as far as the, uh, the latter stages of the war, uh, after the um, effective victory in the Battle of the Atlantic and the um, heavy bombardment by um, British naval forces in uh, D-Day, a lot of the British fleet is sent east to take part in the war against Japan. And then you switch to two very contrary uh, possible tendencies, one putting pressure on the Japanese in Southeast Asia, possibly, for example, uh, as part of what eventually is the planned Operation Zipper, the recapture of uh, Singapore, and more directly to actually operate um, in um, Japanese waters in alliance with the Americans against uh, the home islands of Japan. And the British do both. So, for example, uh, British aircraft carriers are mounting significant attacks on Sumatra, the oil fields in Sumatra, in order to try and deny oil to the Japanese system. But they also uh, mount a, are a significant part of the fleet operating against Japan in 45. Um, and obviously, the British would have been exposed to, they already were exposed to kamikaze and other attacks by the Japanese. Um, they would have been exposed to the full horrors and heavy casualties of the uh, invasion of Japan had Truman uh, not uh, dropped the atom bombs, uh, which you know forced Japan out of the war. But for that, there would have been very, very heavy, not just American casualties, but also uh, casualties among American allied forces, which would have included the British. Mm. Um, I want to return to, um, to home waters and indeed to uh, uh, the, the British mainland. Um, we talked earlier about the operations in um, in uh, Crete and, and Greece and Italy. Um, obviously, the big one is preparing for uh, the liberation of Northern Europe. In that period between um, the evacuation of the British Expeditionary Force in 1940 and D-Day, um, is the bulk of what was the British Expeditionary Force staying in Britain, developing, training, 
rearming, uh, learning new skills, or is this really an entirely new force which is developing a, a conscript army uh, which hasn't been for the most part blooded elsewhere and for which Normandy is, is, the, is the opening campaign? Both. I mean, there are, and the same with the Americans, there are both uh, divisions that have been in operation before and divisions that haven't been. And, um, uh, and I think that that, uh, I mean, as you may know, that it, it's argued that those who uh, hadn't been were, um, as it were, more, in some cases, rash. I mean, that's a matter of opinion, I suppose. Uh, how one would operate uh, under those circumstances, but both. Um, and the uh, 1943 as a whole, and the same thing is true of the British Indian Army operating against the Japanese in Burma, is fundamentally a year in which training plays a big role. There's an excellent book by uh, the British scholar Tim Mormon, a similar book by an American scholar, Daniel Marston, on um, the sort of British, British Indian Army preparations, you know, getting people trained as to how to operate in the jungle, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, you've got to do the same thing. I mean, preparing troops to land um, in, um, you, know, quite, you know, they've got to get out of landing ships under fire a considerable distance uh, offshore, wade ashore, um, uh, with a heavy kit and with a sea swell, you know, it's not going for a walk in the sea, um, and um, then be combat ready, um, you need to be trained for that. You need to be trained for that. Um, and I think it's fair to say that, and of course, thereafter, there is going to be high intensity conflict. So whilst it is true that um, there are some units that are brought back and rested and then used for the invasion. There are other units that are new because you're going to need far more troops um, going in than you've had for your operations in North Africa. Um, what, what do we know about the morale of this British force waiting, preparing and waiting to go in, into uh, Northern Europe during this, this period of preparation? Well, that's interesting. There's a rather good book that came out recently on the morale of the Eighth Army, uh, which argued that the uh, morale was variable in the um, um, spring of 42, spring, late spring, summer of 42, and improved uh, thereafter in 42, and that that was one of the reasons for victory in El Alamein. Um, I mean, <laughs> I think it's always very tricky to work out morale and it's always the case, of course, that people tend to work on a subject and tell you this helps to explain the subject. Um, I think what I would say is um, there was a greater expectation of success by 44 and that that influenced all levels of the military. And it's interesting to note that when in 44 they encounter serious difficulties um, from the Germans around Caen, for example, or from the fact that it takes a long time to break through the German lines at the south of the Cotentin, or subsequently from the Germans in the Hunsruck, or for the British 
in the Arnhem Offensive or for the British and Canadians in the Wildshiren Offensive. What's interesting is that despite uh, what are difficulties, sometimes real setbacks, sometimes very costly setbacks, morale's pretty high. So I think that there is a, um, the army holds up well in difficult circumstances. And in part that reflects um, fighting methods, the methodical fighting methods used by M Montgomery, I think quite important. Um, and also the um, uh, air power is very significant. Um, the whether or not your aircraft are inflicting you know, catastrophic damage on your opponent. The very fact that they're up there, not your opponent's aircraft is important. I remember uh, interviewing two veterans that had been, American veterans incidentally, that had been at D-Day, on D-Day, on the actual day, on the landing force. And they said, um, you know, I was asking them about air cover and they said to me, well, that's an interesting question because now that, you know, we think about it, um, um there any any time we we heard a plane the assumption always was it was one of ours you know which again is uh so i think that um there are a number of factors and also the allied troops were well fed i think that was um and i think there was a fairly um if you're looking at the british um a fair degree of confidence that in the officer force possibly a greater confidence possibly than at some stages earlier on that's a matter that you would have to discuss because obviously uh, you're talking about the interrelationships of individuals who often will take very different views mm. it, well that's an interesting subject you raised the, the relationship between uh, soldiers and sailors and airmen with, with the with, with the senior command uh, generals like Auchinleck and Montgomery and, and Wavell and Slim uh, certainly in retrospect, you know, they are seen as heroic figures uh, from, from, their, from those in, in the ranks. Um, is that how the relationship was at the time or was the relationship closer to how uh, British soldiers would have um, viewed uh, their senior commanders in the First World War? Hmm. Well, I think it's fair to say evidence on this point is variable and limited. Um, and you can look at it several different ways round. I mean, there's a rather good book on the appointment of British officers during the war, which has argued, and the same argument's been made about the appointment of Indian officers, by the way, which has argued that um, the expansion of the army led to the appointment of many people who weren't from the traditional officer background, um, and that that may well have led to a more uh, benign situation. I mean, clearly there are all sorts of complications and issues that uh, situations varied by branch of service, situation varies by unit. Um, but if what you're asking is, was there class war in the British army? I would say only to a very modest extent. And, and generally the generals were, were held in high esteem by by the soldiers, or maybe high teams are wrong. The, the soldiers had faith in their generals. Well, I mean, one of the things that, and there's a good piece by David French in the English Historical Review many years ago on this, um, uh, Churchill sacked a lot of generals. 
Um, now, some of the generals, I mean, Piers Mackersie spent a long time trying to argue that his father was very unfairly sacked over the Norway campaign, but a lot of the generals weren't up to it, or they may well have had other skills, but not the skills required in this particular context. And it reminds me of that uh, marvellous study on military incompetence, which came out in the mid-70s, which sought to argue that the very characteristics that lead to people's promotion in peacetime make them unsuitable in in wartime and you know um i think there's a fair amount of evidence for that um but the key constituency of support if you like was the prime minister and i suppose the very most senior figures um uh in the uh, imperial general staff um the um you're not getting um, mutinies among the armed forces. You're not getting the expression of large-scale disaffection. There is criticism in Parliament of some matters, as you may know, no confidence debate. But that, for example, tends to be over the, as I discuss in my history of tanks, over the, um, uh, the specifications of British tanks rather than over um uh specific generals so um and you know there is uh, there are criticism as i mean jfc fuller as you know world war one military thinker and general uh western Front experience interwar maverick in the 20s arguing that the military should be more mechanized drifts off to the far right in the 30s although he works for mi six uh, sends reports to them a couple of which i published in one of my books my book on interwar uh, fighting over the fighting in the spanish civil war during the war itself he writes some really quite interesting journalism for both british and american periodicals on the war that's going on places like the evening standard and newsweek and I mean, he's pretty damning about the dispatch of troops to Greece, which he says is a strategic disaster. Uh, he's very unimpressed by the Italy operation. He's pretty damning. Um, but I think it's fair to say that criticism of specific military decisions is not to the forefront, I think is the phrase I would use uh, if I had to sum it up in academic speak. Um, so there obviously was some. Um, and the, but for example, the sort of thing that have got people involved, uh, uh, agitated much more recently, which is, was there unnecessary delay in trance Lating, transferring to the anti-submarine struggle in the Atlantic, uh, long-range four-engine bombers rather than using them to bomb Germany, and was this a mistake, on which there's been some very good scholarship. This was not the sort of thing that the, you know, average naval officer or, 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 or sailor was talking about in Plymouth or Portsmouth. Okay, and um, the relationship between Montgomery and um, Allenbrook, how, I mean, both very strong personalities, um, to what extent should we see the British component in the, the push through Northern Europe as Montgomery's strategy, and to what extent is he following 
uh, an overall overarching strategy masterminded uh, by the Chief of the General uh, Imperial Staff, uh, Alan Brooke. Well, the British are part of an alliance. I mean, you know, Eisenhower is supreme commander. So, um, I mean, Montgomery's jostling is with Eisenhower and with um, American commanders rather than with um, um, Allenbrook and the chiefs of staff back at home. There's a lot of debate in 44 as to what to do. Uh, Montgomery isn't the only exponent of a narrow front approach. Devers, who's in charge of the American Sixth Army, wants to do the same sort of thing on the Upper Rhine. Montgomery wants to do it on the Lower Rhine. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that approach ha failed. I mean, you know, Arnhem is a failure. But it's also fair to say that the rather, now look, I mean, we've got to be careful here. I'm not saying I could necessarily have done any better and there were serious logistical issues, but there was certainly no success after Falaise in a kind of manoeuvrist fashion, creating pockets of German forces that were cut off and therefore unable to withdraw to their frontiers and be used there. And to that extent, there is an argument, I've cited it in my Rethinking World War II book, that the uh, Soviets in 44 did better at the operational level than um, the Allied steady as she goes advance on the Western Front, or for that matter, um, the advance in Tuscany. And indeed, in one of my books, I quote from um, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff complaining about Alexander and saying, Alexander is acting a bit like somebody, this is a private letter, a bit like somebody driving pheasants forward rather than trying to cut them off and, you know, kill them. So I think that you could argue if you wanted to be provocative that the narrow front approach wasn't viable given the German ability to mount counter attacks. Now that ability, of course, was rushed to the fore at Arnhem, but that the alternative, the one of Eisenhower, and I'd say Bradley as well, uh, doesn't work either, because what it does is it drives the Germans back, well, the Germans are withdrawing anyway, so what's that achievement? Nothing much. And it doesn't kill lots of Germans when they're in positions, or kill or capture, when they're in positions of non-protected, and instead of which they're able to be pushed back to their frontiers, where they're able to resupply, dig in in very impressive defensive fortifications, particularly um, uh, the, well, against both the British and the Americans, and then subsequently mount a counteroffensive at the bulge. So I wouldn't say that was a brilliant success. I think, um, you know, I, I think itemizing the failure of Montgomery um, doesn't help us unless we note the deficiencies of others. Okay, well, I was very interested when you mentioned earlier you talked to a couple of American veterans of D-Day and they said whenever they heard aircraft over coming overhead they just assumed they were allied aircraft. Uh, obviously the mastery of air superiority is very significant for 
the Allied forces uh, as they uh, liberate Northern Europe. And as they're pushing towards the Rhine, um, to what extent can, would you say, the huge RAF investment in, in bomber command, in pounding German cities uh, was, was um, money and treasure and, and blood well spent on destroying German material and German communications? Or was its uh, um, greater role really in driving the Luftwaffe fighters further back into Germany to defend their cities, ensuring that, uh, that the Allies had air um, superiority as, as their land forces pushed east? Well, I think both factors. I would also add that the Germans in the last six months of the of the war had put up much more resistance than had been anticipated. Their army had not collapsed. They'd shown uh, fighting effectiveness, uh, particularly uh, you know the campaigns around Aachen and Arnhem, um, but not only there. Um, they were um, devising new weapon systems, particularly the new submarine. They were inflicting serious casualties on London and Antwerp through V2s, which went on, you know, worth bearing in mind that people were being killed in Allied cities by uh, missiles right up to the end of the war. Um, so I think that uh, it was a sensible campaign. I feel very sorry for the loss of allied life. A very large number of uh, brave men gave their lives in what were risky circumstances, in bombers up to, often up against um, uh, determined opposition, including the new German jet fighters, as well as uh, heavy anti-aircraft fire. So there was a, a loss of allied life, which was very serious. Um, as far as the Germans were concerned, um, yes, it helped to chew up the Luftwaffe, it um, destroyed the integration of a lot of the German war economy, it damaged German morale, and I would also say it helped to explain one of the really interesting aspects of World War II, which I think is significant for both Germany and Japan, which is where did the resistance go? In other words, after the defeat of Germany and Japan, uh, there was no significant resistance. You know, there was the werewolves in Germany, which killed a few people. The, you know, it's a Nazi stay, but stay at home, as it were, terrorist organization, but very, really nothing. Um, and I actually am of the opinion that not just the formal surrender uh, by Dönitz in Germany and by the emperor's government in Japan was important. And unfortunately, there was no equivalent possible in Iraq in 2003. Um, but so not only was that um, important, uh, but I would also argue, and in delegitimating re in continued resistance, but also I would argue that bombing very, very, very hard um, uh, made it abundantly clear that, the, that this wasn't being stabbed in the back as in, as you know, with the German myth about World War I. They had lost the regime had failed to protect its people. It's very interesting that Goebbels had been very worried, worried about the great firestorm raid on Hamburg and, you know, the effect on German public opinion. And there's some good work by Neil Greger on the effect of, of uh, German public opinion and the bombing of Nuremberg. And I think that this is very significant. Now, obviously, um, you know, I'm well aware 
you know you may not wish you may find it difficult you may get complaints by people if i appear as i do do to support the heavy bombing of germany and indeed the dropping of the atom bombs um in uh, on japan and for that matter the heavy bombing on italy prior to the fall of mussolini which helped to erode civilian morale just as the heavy bombing on sophia helped to um erode uh, bulgarian morale for you know when the bulgarians switched sides in 44 um, uh, well, I'm sorry, but it's not my job to be popular and it oughtn't to be your job to be popular. I'm trying to analyze the situation as I see it, to understand strategy. I've written a number of books about strategy. I've written extensively on air power in World War II. And that is how I see the situation. And unfortunately, what I'm worried about is all too many people who comment today do so from a standpoint of what they would have liked to have happened um, uh, rather than what was actually practical or viable or in touch with the uh, culture of the period. Well, that's a strong note to end on. We're out of time, but uh, uh, Berlin is in ruins and the British armed forces are victorious. Can I make a suggestion that for our next one, we actually try, I know because I think World War II is of interest to people, we actually try and look at an overview of World War II with the Britain, British role vis-a-vis -vis and in comparison with its allies, you know, which I think is important, but also something we haven't really touched on. And I would hope listeners would not feel that neither you nor I are concerned about it, which was the important contribution of the British dominions and empire to the struggle struggle. We will be looking at these themes in next week's edition of Black's History Week. Uh, for now, Professor Jeremy Black, who's uh, many books on uh, the Second World War, include A History of the Second World War and 100 Maps. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the current offer of five issues for £10 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.